reading from Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On that day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crosswords so to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. So far I am reading. Thanks, Christine. Well, it's time for a hard question. Do you have a favourite child? Ooh. Or are you the favourite child? Immediately all of the parents and grandparents in the room are feeling just a little bit uncomfortable in their seats and the kids are waiting to have their own predictions confirmed. If you're like me and you're not an only child, I'm sure that you have a pretty clear idea of who the favourite in your family was. Our boys are constantly having this conversation at our house. They call it the golden child. Most of the time they believe it's Boaz being the golden child because he's the youngest of the four. In a recent UK survey on this topic, it showed that 62% of the parents surveyed had a preference for their youngest child as the favourite. Only 19% stated that it was the eldest child. Now, if you're an eldest child here amongst us this morning, you're in the re now believing that all of your complaining over the years has been vindicated 
by data. And now let's not get started on the whole middle child thing. We all know that we're never in the frame for the golden child. Yes, I believe I was a middle child. Well, the debate about favourite children, the golden child, is not a new debate. It has been raging on for thousands of years. We can actually trace it all the way back to Cain and Abel. Sibling rivalry was most definitely alive and well back then. Sibling rivalry is actually at the centre of our passage here today. This prophecy before us today is about two nations continuing to live out the rivalry of their forefathers, Jacob and Esau, the tussling twins. We're going to take two weeks to work our way through this very little book of Obadiah. Obadiah is a book of prophecy. It's found in amongst the other minor prophets. Now, they're not minor because they're not that important. They're called minor prophets because they're relatively short. That's why they're actually called minor prophets. This one is actually the shortest of all of them. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. Not much is known about the prophet himself, Obadiah. His name means one who serves Yahweh, one who serves God. But what we can know is lots about the main characters of this book of prophecy. Their significance in God's one big story. Now, to help us understand the significance of the relationship between these two nations, Edom and Judah, we're going to have a quick fly over some significant events in the history of these two nations and these two brothers. This foundation work we do together will help us understand and apply the teachings of this very little book. But it'll also serve to show us, once again, the unity of Scripture. The one big story of salvation that is found within Scripture. Theologian C.H. Dodd says that there is a two-beat rhythm to biblical history. Judgment and salvation. And we're going to see these two rhythms quite clearly here over the next two weeks. So this story of tension between these two nations goes back hundreds of years before. Jacob and Esau were actually fighting even before they were born. God knew that these tussling twins would grow into two tussling nations. In Genesis 25, God tells Rebekah, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, they were twin boys. And the first came out was red, and his whole body was covered like a hairy garment. And they called him Esau. And after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping onto his heel, and his name was Jacob. This is the start of this tussling that is occurring between these two. If we track with Jacob and Esau, we see some clear parental favoritism. Both Isaac and Jacob had their own favourites. Esau became a skilful hunter and loved the outdoors, and Isaac loved to eat the wild game that Esau brought with his hunting exploits. They were well connected, and Esau, and Esau was Isaac's favourite. Jacob, on the other hand, preferred the indoors and hanging out at home with his mum. Rebecca, Jacob was her favourite. Now, Esau was the firstborn, even if only by mere seconds, and I have heard it, 
from some twins that it's actually a big deal if you're the eldest, even if only by seconds. But for Esau, this meant that the customs and the traditions of the day stated that he had the birthright. The firstborn became the head of the family and would become in charge of the family, the property and the people. This usually also included a special blessing which would be received from the father. And it was believed to place that person in a close and favoured covenant relationship with God. Now when we remember that Jacob and Esau's dad is Isaac, whose dad is Abraham, this takes on even greater significance. Father Abraham, who has the most amazing promise and blessing that is given to him from the Lord. Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on all the earth will be blessed through you. Wow, that's a pretty special blessing to be passed down to the firstborn, to Esau. But that's not what happened. He gave it up over a bowl of stew. As we heard earlier, Esau had been out hunting, Jacob had been home cooking, Esau rocks up at home, totally stuffed and starving, asks for some stew, Jacob sees an opportunity, asks Esau to sell him his birthright for a bowl of stew. And Esau, he does it. He swears an oath to Jacob that the birthright was now his. Now the boys also don't tell their father about this. In Genesis 27, 38, the Bible states that Esau despised his birthright. Now the word here doesn't mean that he hated it. What the word here means is he did not value it. He did not hold it as he should have. Jacob, however, valued that birthright and sought it out. Years later, Esau seemed to realise that something that he should should not have given up was his birthright and he changes his mind and he wants it back now this time Rebecca works with her golden child Jacob and they chuck some animal hair on him and some smelly clothes of Esau's and put him in front of Isaac the deception worked and Jacob gets the blessing later Esau rocks up after being out hunting and he begs his dad for a blessing Isaac blesses his favorite son Esau but it's not with the same blessing that Jacob received. Esau gets super angry. He starts plotting to kill Jacob. Now one can't help but hear the reflections of the first sibling rivalry of Cain and Abel in this story. While Esau is plotting to kill his brother, Jacob gets out of there as quickly as he can before Esau can get him. Now, if we track forward through their history a little bit further, we see that these tussling twins go their separate ways and they grow into large families, into nations. God blesses both of them with much. In Genesis 33, we see that they meet up. Now, Jacob tries to soften the meeting between them by, by sending some gifts ahead of him to Esau before they, before they meet up. Now, it seems that they reconnect quite well after so much time away and after such significant tension before them. But no sooner do things seemed patched up that they then, once again, go their separate ways. You see, God had blessed them both so much, he kept his word to both of them that they couldn't physically actually stay in the same place. They had too much stuff. 
Esau went to the land that God had given him and his nation, the Edomites, to the hill country of Seir, whereas Jacob and his family eventually we track back to Canaan. As we skip ahead again, we see Jacob's family grow and we see the Israelites end up being enslaved into Egypt and then God brings them out. But who is there to meet them once again? It's Edom. This complicated relationship between these nations continues through the ages. After fleeing Egypt, Moses writes to the king of Edom and requests as a brother nation for safe passage through Edom. He reflects on the hardships that they've had in Egypt and he promises that they'll stick to the road. They won't take from the land of the Edomites. But the reply from the king of Edom is a resounding no. You may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. The tussling continues. And on and on through history, it continues. In the days of King Jehoshaphat, Edom joined in and attacked Judah. The tussling continues. In the time of King Jerome, Edom again rebelled against them. And then again with King Ahaz's days. And with this backdrop, we find ourselves landing here in Obadiah. A book of great reversals. Theologian Jonathan Gibson summarizes the book of Obadiah in just one sentence. He says this, The realization of the Lord's sovereignty in the role reversal of Edom and Judah on the day of the Lord. The realization of the Lord's sovereignty in the role reversal of Edom and Judah on the day of the Lord. There are three key parts that we're going to look at as we look through this prophecy. We'll focus on the first two this week and we'll recap and then focus on the third next week. Judgment for Edom is the first, salvation for Judah is the second, and restoration of the kingdom is the third. So let's get into our text here, picking it up from verse 2. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle, you make your nest among the stars. From there I will bring you down, says the Lord. You see, Edom was on the ascendancy. And Judah was becoming more and more vulnerable. Eventually, this led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the people of Judah. Edom believed that it was in a good position, and it was, both physically and politically. We can see and hear clearly in this passage that Edom had some big issues with pride. Physically, the Edomites lived in the hills. They were physically secure from attacks. They lived there in the cleft of the rock. They made their homes in the height. They looked down upon everyone else. Politically, Edom had made all sorts of arrangements and agreements with the peoples who lived around them. Pride is evident here. The poetic uses in those first few verses is, is almost sarcastic. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars... I will bring you down. The Edomites thought that they were almost untouchable among the stars. 
But the Lord will reverse all of this. Verse 5. If thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave just a few grapes? Oh, but how Esau will be ransacked. His hidden treasures will be pillaged and all allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. You see, things here, friends, are being flipped, flipped on their heads by God. He's heaping judgment on Edom. It's not just a few coins that will be stolen or a few grapes with some being left over. Disaster is coming for Edom, ransacked, pillaged, destroyed. Physically, the Edomites would be driven out of their high places. Politically, the arrangements and agreements that they've had with other nations will turn to deception. They will become deceived by their own allies. And pridefully, Edom states, who can bring me down? God says, I can. They start high and they're brought low. But, but why is God doing this? Is, is God not impressed by them? No. God isn't impressed. He's not impressed by the things that impress us. He's not impressed by our physical security, our political influence. Proverbs 16, 18 teaches us that pride comes before destruction. And we know that when we find our security, self-worth and significance in things other than God, it won't last. At the root of all of this is sin, putting things before God. It's idolatry. It's true that God isn't impressed with your great career. He's not impressed with your education, your family or your business. He's not in awe of your sporting ability or your musical talent or even your good looks. Now that's not to say that these things aren't good in and of themselves, but if our focus shifts to seeking them or seeking glory from them, from others, well, that's a problem. That's a big problem. Pride is a big problem. We need to pause and reflect on this in our own lives. Do we want to impress others? Do we try to impress God? Do we do what we do for Him, for our own glory, or for His? Do we do what we do to establish security for ourselves? Where is our security, self-worth and significance found? Is it found in God or, or is it found in something else? It's clear here that Edom's security was found in themselves in their things. Now, while this is something that is really important for us to pause and reflect on and is definitely here in this passage, it's actually not the main point of this book. The reason God would bring Edom down wasn't just because of their pride. Look at verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob. The reason God would bring Edom down was because of their violence against their brother nation. Remember the promise we talked about earlier to Abraham? The blessing given to Jacob? I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. 
Remember what the Lord said to Rebekah, one people would be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. From a human perspective, it seems Edom had the ascendancy. They had the supremacy, but the reversal was coming. Look with me back at verse 10. You will be covered with shame and you will be destroyed forever. Edom's pride turns to shame. Edom's security turns to destruction. Judgment is coming because of Edom's attitude and actions towards God's people. From verse 11 to 14, we can see and unpack these actions or or these crimes, if you will, that Edom was involved with. Firstly, Edom watched on and ignored. Verse 11, On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. While Judah is being invaded and its wealth is being stolen, while other nations enter into its gates and cast lots, you, Edom, you did nothing. You just watched. You watched your brother nation be cursed and be ransacked. It doesn't stop there. Not only did they watch, they gloated and rejoiced in that. Verse 12, you should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. While this misfortune, destruction, trouble is happening to Judah, Edom isn't moved to rise up and help their brother nation. Edom is actively getting pleasure from it. Not only don't they help, they rejoice. They rejoice in their brother nation getting smashed. But it doesn't stop there. Not only did they watch and rejoice, they joined in. Verse 13, You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. You see, Edom sees an opportunity and seizes the wealth and waits at the crossroad to cut down those who are fleeing. Their brother nation, they joined in and cursed Judah. Now history shows that during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, Jerusalem was attacked and was destroyed. Psalm 137 verse 7 says, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried out. Tear it down to its foundations. The Edomites were involved in the plunder of the city. But the great reversal is coming. While Edom cuts down Judah's fugitives, we see in verse 9 and 10 and then in 18 that they themselves will be cut down. There will be no survivors from Edom. The Lord has spoken. Friends, Obadiah is clear that judgment is coming for Edom because of its actions and attitudes towards God's people. This should serve as a clear and powerful warning for those who choose to to curse God's people. Throughout history, we can see this being fulfilled. We can contract the fall and eventual demise of Edom. 
But hang on a second, where is the second beat of this two-beat rhythm that C.H. Dodd spoke about in biblical history? We've seen judgment and judgment and more judgment. Where's the salvation? Is Obadiah just all about judgment? There is salvation. There is salvation for Judah and through Judah. God would and did and still is delivering his people. God's grace will preserve a remnant who will be restored and enjoy his salvation. You see, God always keeps his promises. God kept his promise and continued to work out this one big story of judgment and salvation, even though his own people fell away and rebelled at different times. God is always there to fulfill his promises. If we track through history, we can see that Cyrus, through Cyrus, God did bring his people home from exile in Babylon and they returned to their land. But national restoration and salvation for Judah is only part of that picture. God's people are in need of spiritual salvation. You see, all people fall short of God's glory. The deeper problem of sin and idolatry requires a deeper solution than being restored from physical exile. We need restoration and spirit, from spiritual exile. God offers, offers that spiritual salvation. And in an amazing example of the unity of Scripture and the foreknowledge of God, history shows us that another descendant of Esau was King Herod the Great. And he tried to have another descendant of Jacob, Jesus, killed as a child. Just as Esau wanted to kill Jacob, so Herod the Great wanted to kill Jesus. God's enemies will continue to rise up and God will continue to win the battle. Because history shows that Herod the Great didn't succeed. But where he failed, Herod the Great's son Herod Antipas joined with Pontius Pilate to try and finish the job. And they did. Jesus did die. Did Esau finally get his revenge? Had God failed? No, because it was part of God's plan. Jesus died because God's judgment for sin had to come to bear somewhere. And it came to bear on Jesus. A descendant of Jacob. Remember the blessing to Abraham and all people on earth will be blessed through you. Jesus from the tribe of Judah came the salvation of the world. Jesus took that judgment and brought salvation and through him we have victory. Now we started this morning by asking a hard question about if parents have favourites. Here's another hard question. Does God have favourites? In short, no. Not in the same way we think about favourites. But God does have his people. And through the saving work of Jesus Christ, God's special people are not just from Israel. They are from all nations. Not just the tribe of Judah. In Revelation 5, we read about Jesus, who is worthy to take the scrolls and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed 
people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, God is a sovereign king who judges all nations and moves all history according to his gracious purposes. No, God doesn't have favourites. God has his people and he shows them favour. Friends, this morning I want you to pause and I want you to reflect if you're actually with God. Are you one of his people? Have you acknowledged your need for judgment and acceptance of Jesus' act of taking the judgment on the cross? Are you struggling with pride and idolatry? Are you trying to save yourself, even in doing things for God, but for your own glory? Are you saved by his work on the cross, or are you still trying to save yourself? Are you busy building your own position of power? Are you trusting in your own saving work, which will fail? Make no bones about it. Trust in the saving work of Christ because it will never fail. Friends, make no mistake. If you are not with God, you are against him. And you will be judged. The judgment of God towards sin is terrifying. The disaster we read of here in Obadiah is terrifying. But the salvation offered through Jesus is amazing. And it is available to all nations. Have you responded to his call? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your one big plan of judgment and salvation. Lord, we know that you are a God who is perfect. Because of your perfection, you must judge. And that judgment had to fall on someone. And in your perfect son, his sacrifice was acceptable. Father, we thank you that you have always had a plan from the beginning of the world to call the people to yourself and to save them through your son Jesus for all nations from every tribe and every tongue. Father, remind us this morning of this saving work and of what we have been saved from in your precious and holy name. Amen.